Welcome to my so-called sustainable life, a podcast where we compare our personal sustainability lives with our professional one. We share candid conversations, interview guests, and get real about the realities of working in sustainability while also working towards a more just future, all in the name of mitigating our climate anxiety. Sustainable Concordia would like to acknowledge that my so-called sustainable life is recorded on the unceded territory of the Ganyangehaga and the Haudenosaunee in Jojage. We are committed to listening to and collaborating with the original stewards of this land. Go to nativeland.ca to find out more about the territories we are on as Turtle Island inhabitants. We'd also like to acknowledge that the physical space we work out of is currently inaccessible and that we are committed to making our programming accessible for everyone in spite of this. A content warning. This episode talks about suicide, mass death, the Rana Plaza collapse. Proceed with caution. Hello. Welcome back. How are you doing? Hello, hello. I'm doing good. The sudden change into winter really, really hit me this week. Yeah, I'm feeling it too. My body feels very heavy. So do we want to do updates from last week? We talked briefly about one icon who recently passed. Yeah, Virgil Abloh just passed away and I I think he had brain cancer. Yeah. And that's extremely sad and a loss for the fashion community. And I feel sad about that. But I brought this up to somebody. I was like, oh, yeah, Virgil Abloh died. And like, it was all over my Instagram. But I mentioned that to somebody and they were like, oh, you know, like Louis Vuitton, they burn all their bags at the end of the season. There's always that like the bittersweetness of like this the creative person, the designer, the person that's supposed to be making a lot of the decisions sort of gets like cut off at the at the neck. <laughs> and everything else is is just about like consumerism and profit and everything after the designer there's sort of maybe a culture around it of like the designer just like not knowing or like maybe he did know there are these well-meaning designers who are trying to change the industry and sort of like take back the creative part of it yet yeah. they are stuck in this really awful system where you're like overusing the land and exploiting uh, labor and human capital. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think is that we don't think also about the intersectionality and all the different layers within like the fashion system. It's definitely a win when a person of color is a director of a certain big house brand but behind that as well as like how much change can you make in a luxury brand that still is operating under what we know is today as unsustainable fashion. It's, it's complex. And I feel like people, we should celebrate one thing, but also having to keep in mind that there's other struggles um, that go with designing a brand. A lot of the legacy that Virgil Abloh did leave is his off-white brand, which, you know, really put streetwear into luxury fashion and um, from there so many different collaborations and a cult following I think it's 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 a good way for people to now just to start thinking about what 
is the real role this in these days that a fashion designer has, you know, like what kind of power that you have as a designer. And today we'll examine also, again, the power that we have as consumers and um, what it is that the garment workers have to say. So big rest in power to Virgil Abloh. Yeah. I do want to say one other thing with our like check-ins and stuff. And we talked a little bit about it. I sent you a message about Chanel's advent calendar. (laughs) Oh God, tis the season, eh? It's like like emblematic of the whole industry of like, we package this all nice up for you and the novelty is worn off. And now all you have is these little stickers, like one lipstick. First of all, just a little backstory. I think, yeah, here it is. So Chanel is Mm -hmm. selling this advent calendar for $825 equivalent to someone's rent. Okay. And inside you're seeing things like uh, a keychain made out of plastic, like small, tiny, like lipsticks. And, oh, here's the crazy one. There's one that was just a literally a dust bag. Okay. Just a tiny bag where you can put the stickers that they give you in it. And I don't even know who to like roll my eyes to like the person buying this and probably both and Chanel for like putting out the scam. And I'm just like, wow, this is really where fashion is at right now. When like a huge brand like Chanel that actually did revolutionize how women have been dressing because they started to introduce the pants is Mm -hmm. now like creating advent calendars as a way to literally probably just get rid of their stock. For me, it was just very indicative that like no one can escape this reality that fashion is in, which is a direct reflection of our societies in, which is just a big freaking joke because Chanel is such a huge brand. They're luxury. When you think of Chanel, I don't think of stickers. I don't think of an advent box. I think of an expensive, well-made garment. And just to show that they've gone down this low is like fast fashion is not just, you know, Zara or H&M. It's really like the, the whole industry is just shifting towards something completely ridiculous. In the name of like status, flaunting <sighs> love. And what's even worse is that I've been seeing people sell these like stickers and plastic like bracelets on eBay. What's the so, resale? <laughs> Give it to me straight. Right, <laughs> so there's, there's this one here, the, the gold charm, which I'm sure it's not made out of gold, but whatever. We'll just give it the benefit of the doubt with like a string. Someone is selling it for like $30. Oh my God. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's not even a chain. It's literally a string, like a black string. Excuse me, a black chic string. (laughs) So um, I guess this could be a good time to think about like where all of this comes from and how this is all connected. I think in the past few episodes, we've just really have been specific in looking at the players around the system, you know, like us, me and you as consumers, and then like centering the garment workers. And now I think what is really good with the documentary that we're going to be um, talking about today. It's called The True Cost uh, that was released in 2015. I really like that they showed how interconnected everything is and really showed at face value what this system is. I also don't want to start saying that 
this is how a sustainable fashion system should be because the fashion industry period should be sustainable. So what we're operating under right now is an unsustainable fashion industry. And we should just call it as it is, you know, like, yeah. So I just, I think like the accountability, because what was that thing that you were talking about? It's like a brand index for like the sustainability of a company. Uh, It's called the fashionchecker.org. I was reading that, but they were talking about how a brand, because they were explaining the rating. So a brand could have a hundred percent and that a hundred percent doesn't mean that they're doing everything perfectly. It means that they have their hand in a hundred percent of the elements that make a, a brand sustainable. So mm. say there's like four elements and it's like, you're treating your workers well, the building is safe. Everybody gets like a good wage. Like, I guess these are all four of the same things, but like, if you're comparing that to other brands, then a brand that has all four has a hundred percent, but if they falter, it's like a higher risk for them. And the idea that like a brand, like one that we're going to see in the true cost is not a hundred percent sustainable and like could get a hundred percent on fact checker or fashionchecker.org, And that, is just a means of comparison. The 100% doesn't mean that you're doing everything 100% right. It just means that you're trying with all the elements that it takes to be sustainable. Yeah, no, for sure. And thanks thanks for like making that clearer. And I mean, I'm, I'm always a bit worried about, about all these like different checkers and um, that compares brands because it, it's under whose bias and like, you know, what, yeah. what measuring it against. So I think it's super important that you made that distinction. And also I'm like, maybe we shouldn't rank it out of a hundred because we think a hundred and we think like, okay, all our problems are solved because this particular company's able to achieve sustainability when we all know, in fact, that it's nearly impossible mm-hmm. to be hundred percent sustainable, especially if we're still functioning under a capitalist structure. Yeah, but it is possible to be, accountable. 100% accountable. Yes. Yes. With this um, system, right? Because you're going down the list and you're checking and you're making sure that like your factory is set up to have all of these sustainable items, all of these sustainable attributes, and you just keep checking and you just keep going down the line and you keep adding. And then that's sort of the intention around it. Whether or not a factory reaches 100% in terms of the goals that it wants to have related to sustainability has very little to do with factory owners and garment workers and a lot to do with the people who make the most profit from this industry. So tell me your thoughts. Tell me everything that you feel about this documentary. Go. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So the true cost, I was a bit uh, hesitant or not not hesitant, but I guess when I rewatched it after it came out in 2015, so that's what, seven years now? And I was like, oh, is this going to still hold true? Am I going to have the same emotions when I first watched it? Because honestly, I was really, I was moved by a lot of the stories and I felt empowered towards the end of it, which gave me more confidence because I, I used to have an upcycling brand And that like watching this documentary for the first time, I was like, yes, what I'm doing, upcycling clothing and taking waste and creating creating something new out of it 
is actually, it makes sense, you know? And then now years later, rewatching it, I'm like, this is still so super relevant to what's going on. And I can't believe how little things have changed, although things have changed a little bit, you know, like we're talking about these tools like fashionchecker.org and more people having conversations and like movements. But then I'm also- In a lot of ways, it's gotten worse, right? With the pandemic. I mean, I think now with the pandemic, it's even highlighting more at how as consumers, we hold so much of the power within what pushes and drives the supply chain, you Mm -hmm. know? So- I think it can go both ways and we're at the influx point of where this can go next. I mean, it's really pushing a lot of designers and brands are starting to think that this is what we want, that we want real solutions. So we're still at the very beginning of all of this, but this, this documentary, if anyone gets a chance, I really recommend it. I think it does a really good job and a lot of the things that it talks about still holds true. It's on Amazon. Prime, but I, well, maybe I shouldn't say that I watched it on YouTube, but it's available on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I watched it on YouTube too. And it used to be on Netflix, but I don't know why they, they took it out, but it's really great. It's really a classic tale of greed and fear, power and poverty. In all, it talks about the story of clothing, what we wear, the people who make it, and the impact that it's doing. So what I really love about it is that it's looking at all the different inputs that are used to create the output of fashion that goes beyond the final product of a t-shirt. And it ties in this idea that the seams and the thread in our clothes is what truly connects us globally. It starts off with journalist Lucy Siegel and fashion designer, Fashion Revolution co-founder and writer Ursula de Castro who is one of my personal, I don't want to say hero, but a lot of her work has influenced me in the way I think about fashion. She she recently published this book called Love Clothes Last, How the Joy of Rewearing and Repairing Your Clothes Can Be a Revolutionary Act. At the top of the documentary, she says she was the typical person that has clothes, clothes everywhere, bags of clothes coming in and out of her apartment. Yet she could never put together a coherent outfit. That's very much where I feel like I've been stuck for the past six months to a year. It's a nice like opener to have somebody that's like, I was the same, like, and it's nice to think, okay, (laughs) I can get out of this slowly, but surely the quickness with which we consume, because she also was saying that it used to be four seasons and now there's like a new thing every week. 52 seasons and so that was nice to hear in the sense of like the anxiety that I feel around it is not just me it's very much manufactured that way to make you buy more clothes and just now I'm thinking too about how different stores will play like really hype music to make you anxious Mm -hmm. while you shop so you feel like you cannot make rational decisions that are holistic for like your wallet your conscious the space in your apartment yeah I definitely can relate to that I mean from the last episode my mom brought a lot of that culture into my shopping experience and um, that's just kind of you know since the boom of advertising I think that's what it's been it's like we are just looking to buy what happiness means to us so we'll get 
more into that because um, there's a couple of really interesting people that got on and, and, and talked about, I guess, the psychology behind all of this. Mm-hmm. And I think um, that's definitely a really great point to touch on. And it, it was really cool that she did, in a way, admit that she had these consumption problems and is now this like fashion journalist who's been studying and trying to look at the systems behind fashion for the past 10 years. So Wow. Okay. (laughs) So everybody's story is like, I used to be just like you. And then I saw the truth. But I mean, if it's not, if it's not clothing, it's something else, you know, like consumption is consumption. For me, it's always been a good place to start because I'm like, I know like that this is something that I need to put on every day, but for other people, it's something else. But yeah, so back to Ursula de Castro. (laughs) She's awesome. I can't wait to get myself this book because I've been following her for a long time. And the very first time that I met her was back in 2016 when I went to London and I got to go to Fashion Week. And um, during that same time of London Fashion Week, there was also like a design week. And there was an event that was like a roundtable talk on sustainable fashion. And she was one of the panelists. And I've heard of her name before, but I wasn't like being a fangirl towards her yet. And when I went to the round panel talk, wow, it was so incredibly powerful for me because it was the first time that I was in a room of people who talked about fashion in a way that seemed so meaningful and like related it to not just having it be about seasons or like silhouettes, but just talking about the social and environmental aspect of the fashion industry and how we all partake in it. I like when she said that clothes is really what we choose to put on our bodies every day. And our skin is our biggest organ. It is interesting because I'd never thought, like I know that there are some fabrics that that irritate me or that after a while I'm like okay I've been in this like this really feels like armor and sometimes also with chronic pain like sometimes getting dressed feels like you know when you have to go get an x-ray and they put that big iron sheet on you so that you don't get radioactive I don't really know why to do it but yeah that's sort of how it feels sometimes to get dressed to think of like how little we talk about fabric what goes directly onto our skin and there's all these chemicals too that gets used to make the clothes chemicals that are used to package the clothes and that's going directly onto your skin anyway the part that's really important is that she said that it's like basically our armor it's what we it's how we choose to like take on the world and so Mm -hmm. it makes sense to be intentional about those things but i think our society we don't really have time to turn inwards and have intention about the things that we're doing for ourselves, right? Yeah, definitely. They sort of turned it into a thing where you're constantly looking outwards, constantly comparing and not thinking like, what do I want to put on my body that's going to make me feel good? It's like, what do I want to put on my body that's going to protect me from criticism of others, from the idea of being an outcast from not wearing the right clothes. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I totally agree with you. The clothes are definitely, it's an armor. And I think she, she also mentioned how like, it's, it's how we extend our being 
you know, and our, our true selves to others. So I think that part of the documentary, she was saying how clothing and this movement has been so important for her. What she said during this roundtable talk, she's referring to this chemist, this French chemist called Antoine Laurent de la Vossie, and he's talking about the conservation of mass. She's talking about the waste in fashion industry, and she's like, in nature, nothing is created and nothing in destroy- is destroyed, but everything is transformed. For me, it was so poetic because not only have I been thinking about what it means for me to like look at these clothes in my closet, upcycle it, but also how can I look at my life and as a human being and transform it as well? When, when she said that, honestly, I was like, trying to hold myself back from tears. I didn't really I know. Like... I'm thinking about it now and I'm like, whoa, because it's about biomimicry in a way. Like we have to be as humans. We've just like taken this earth and ran, you know, yeah. and we're not, we're not thinking about like our grandchildren and the, the whoever that comes after us as much as we should be. Mm. And we're only thinking about where it is now and how it can serve us now. The, the history of fashion, you know, what's really like back in the day was like, what kind of family group are you in and who can make your clothes and all these different colors associated to, to your like family. Yeah. And from, from this documentary, there was like a news reporter that was just saying like, this is the high street revolution. And I'm like, that's literally what fast fashion was. You know, it's like trying to, get people that were just wearing streetwear to get these like run runway looks in the flash. And if you really look at it, I always look at fast food and fast fashion as similar things. If you have like fashion plus a good value, that's the recipe for how this has been able to expand so big. And it's like, obviously when that, when a lot of people from the global North are purchasing all these like value clothing, the global marketplace is just a space where we export work in whatever condition that it's in. And then the products come back to us that are cheap enough for us to throw away without thinking about it. At the end of the day, it's people at the top of the supply chain that decide where these clothes are being made, which from the previous episode, and even in this documentary, um, it's really focused in places like Bangladesh. And I really thought it was interesting how in this particular documentary, they interviewed a factory owner, Arif Jetbeek. Yes, we're getting the real tea. He was also very frustrated at how he doesn't have a choice because right. at every single point, he is forced to squeeze down his price. You know, like when someone in the supply chain, that's like, listen, this, this factory is making $4 for the t-shirt can you match that? And of course he's like, okay. So then when that particular factory is not making it $4, then someone else is like, well, I found someone else. I can make it at $3. So in any point, it's like, that's where you're cutting the corners. No one has a real choice. Yeah. Because in blood, sweat and t-shirts, they sort of frame the factory workers as these like big head of industries. They're wearing suits, they're walking around. Uh, Oftentimes they speak very good English because they're doing these like deals internationally. 
But in this documentary, it was just like a guy in a chair. He was in the factory. He was sitting down. And I could feel his rage in a way that was sort of concealed in the blood, sweat, and t-shirts documentary. How cheap do you want the clothes to be? Like, it really is like, if we could charge you to make the clothes, like we would. And it is sort of what they're doing with the cotton industry and the biotech industries and cotton farming where they have a monopoly on seeds and they will like sell the seeds and they only last a season and then then they will ask the farmers for all the money they owe them i like that they cover the environmental aspect of that in this documentary but also always centering it around the people who are taking care of the land while they're creating these products for us it's so this air of like if we could charge you, we would. And now there's like farmers that have to buy seeds for their own crops. Like you, it's not that if you could, you would, it's you can and you have, and you found a way. You've like invested time, energy, and resources on how to like exploit people further to feed into your bottom line. And for what? I know. And, you know, that brings us to one of the most, I guess, pivotal moments in fast fashion history when Rana Plaza collapsed. Um, So basically, Rana Plaza is a garment factory that's located in Dhaka, Bangladesh. So it's an eight-story building. It collapsed in 2013. Okay, so do you want to just talk about in the U.S. how in the 1960s, 95% of clothes were made domestically and today... Only 3% is made domestically. It's just a ruthless shift from a ruthless shift to big business centric fashion industry. So it's not about anymore like who can put the most creative thing on a silhouette or like on a, on a model, who can use the most innovative fashion. It's really just like who can get the most buzz about their product for the least amount of money there's this one guy who has an extremely punchable face benjamin powell and he was talking about that sweatshops big air quotes for him they actually bring higher standards of labor practices to these areas even if all the labor practices were copacetic and then you told me there's no air conditioning like sweatshop like that's a sweatshop But it's so crazy how like they're still able to justify that after in the news, like literally an eight story building collapsed and like over a thousand people died. And in that year alone, that's not the only one. There was the Ali Enterprise, the fire where 289 garment workers died. The Tazreen Fashion Company, 112 workers died. And that year alone was the most profitable year for fashion in 2013, totaling up to $3 trillion. Okay, wait, so profitable before the collapse? Or do you think that 2013 was like the most profitable because of? This is the argument that's happening. It's like, because we're making clothes so fast and people are consuming them, then the fashion industry has just increased and like the profits have increased. But within that is we can see that all the working conditions are completely dire and dangerous. So that was like very heartbreaking to see like the 
all the workers crying and they were talking about how there are still people trying to be found in the rubble and I just want to clarify yeah it's like so sad I'm trying not to cry (laughs) just to clarify that fire there was 1,129 casualties for the sake of our clothing it's really not it doesn't make any sense it's so messed up but Back to um, Dr. Evil, Benjamin Powell, who is the director of Free Market Institute and who argues that sweatshops, which he puts in quotation marks, are actually good. So true cost of fashion, which is literally in this case in point, deaths, is justified because it's an economic benefit. And he's saying things are like, this is like the least worst option that they have. These are places People choose to work. And he's saying, oh, it's like a part of the process to raise living standards because all of this creates jobs. So then it creates a higher wages, better living conditions over time. And then he he dares to argue that that's lifting all these workers to have physical capital, technology, and human-like skills in the future. Wow. And do you know who else pisses me off more? Is this former sourcing manager, Kate Ball Young. Who, were, who used to work at Joe Fresh, which has been associated to the Rana Plaza collapse. And she, she was saying how like, they're doing a job. There's a lot worse that they can be doing. But what I, what really pissed me off, she was like, you know, they're not doing a dangerous job. It's not like it's coal mining. Yes. Clothes. I'm like, yeah. Sewing is just, it's not a particularly dangerous thing. First of all, sewing painful for the hands, you get arthritis, it's hard on your body, your neck is down, you have a teeny tiny light on your sewing machine. And this is like, if you have a good sewing machine, all the sewing machines as we saw in blood, sweat and t-shirts, garbage broken on a shitty generator. Okay. So first of all, like there is hazard associated with any kind of physical labor job. Secondly, there's clearly violence that this lady is ignoring because even if you work in the factories, it doesn't it's not a living wage. So you have to go elsewhere for money to support your family. And that puts you in dangerous situations. OK, so she's uh-huh. only thinking of sewing's an easy job, blah, blah, blah. First of all, that's the feminization of, of sewing. And secondly, once you're in the factory, that's like the hard part. But like there's harder parts all around. Yeah. Trying to like get to the factory, finding childcare for your children. Yes. And it's like even going into a factory where you literally like, so with the Rana Plaza collapse, garment workers have literally been like, there are cracks. This building is gonna literally fall apart. Please, we can't be working in these conditions. All of that, plus just being in this workplace where you can literally feel the walls closing in on you. I I don't know. It just really pissed me off when she said that. And I'm like, wow. Yeah. What are we going to do when we have all of our clothes? It's that there's a Cree proverb that is like, once we've eaten all the fish and all the trees and we've cut down all the trees, like you can't eat money. Yeah, you have these big bricks of clothing that you send to Haiti and to other places in the global south, but you can't make a house out of these bricks of clothing. You can't like find education for your children. You can't barter with these bricks of clothing because there's no- nobody knows what's in them. The donation, the fact that when you donate your clothes to a thrift store, only 3%? Yeah, 3%. Of what you donate gets actually sold and the rest 
gets shipped. So then I was thinking too about employees of like a value village, for example, they're like triaging things and being like, I guess we'll chuck this one to the other side of the world. Yeah. First of all, so much work, so much uh, pressure on a minimum wage employee. They definitely don't make enough money to be discerning in that way. And there's definitely not enough time to be discerning. Definitely. I mean, that's that's in itself, I think, the whole secondhand pre-loved clothing. These days, it's really booming in, into its own economy. And within that, too, we need to ask for accountability. It's like you're saying, sending all these clothes that won't be sold in the global north. There's so much impact, not just like the carbon dioxide, the water usage to ship it there, but it's also affecting their local economy. Like, what about these, you know, local designers and creatives who aren't being able to like sustain their lives from their craft because people are just buying cheap clothes from the global North. There's actually this really interesting organization and it's in Ghana and it's called the Aura's Present. And basically the people from Ghana call these clothes that are coming from the global North, the dead white man's clothes. Yeah, it's like a cultural thing. It really is like the estate sale of your former self. Yeah, and and they were saying in this documentary that- there's like no local clothes economy in Haiti, which is like heartbreaking to think of. And instead of having their own local clothes economy, which would be like eons more colorful than just like yeah. a t-shirt. Yeah, they make t-shirts to bring to like Canada and the States instead of, you know, working on their own craft. And like, you know, the quality of the clothes from like local garment makers in Haiti. Gotta be. The, the color. colors in itself. Exactly. Like, because that's another thing is this person who works in Japan from this documentary. She People Tree. The name of the of, of the company is called People Tree and they do like fair trade. Mm. And they were showing us like her explaining, looking at the design she was wearing it herself, which is very cool. And you don't see factory workers putting the garment on. But then she was asking about embroidery on the back and she was like right that's not too intensive and it's like right because embroidery its own skill that person's name who you mentioned is Safia Mini and is the founder and CEO of People Tree mm-hmm. so she's doing really really great work putting like social development and environment and all the things that she does doing like fair trade so there there are people that are thinking about this all differently there's a fact here that i wrote and i was like wow one in six people work in some part of the global fashion industry. I think we should take it back to really where our, all of our clothing starts, which is, well, the ones that are made from organic matter. It's, it's on a farm. So just looking at where the thing that each one of us owns is a pair of t-shirt and where that all begins is on a, on a farm. And um, there's this really interesting person that they interviewed, Larray Pepper. What, what really got my gears going is when she said that land at this moment is being viewed as a factory. Yes, being treated as a factory. Started with us calling it renewable energy, right? It's not renewable. Like once we've exhausted all the land, like it's not going to grow back as quickly as the standards of a factory. And then they showed like an ad for Monsanto. Obviously, when we're thinking about like cotton, GMO, Roundup is a huge product. The ad that they use, and I was like, whoa, this is so creepy and it's so evil. The ad for Monsanto is like dedicated to improving agriculture, improving future generations to come. And I'm like, no, you're not. You know, and then there's this really awesome environmental activist that they interviewed whose name is Vandana Shiva. 
And whoa, I would love to just like have a moment to sit and have a tea with her because she was giving me the 101, the tea. And I was like, yes. So basically, you know, how she takes us through this idea of like GMO cotton is that after the war, there were factories that were kind of laying around that had been making chemicals and explosives. So the factories were in the Western countries and they wanted to market it to the third world uh, developing countries because I personally didn't know this, but it's the same industries. The ones that make the explosives are the same people that make nitrogen fertilizers. Mm -hmm. So that's crazy. I had no idea. Yeah. I I didn't even really conceptualize nitrogen fertilizers, but I feel like it makes a lot of sense that like after a while you have to use more and you have Monsanto is not breeding its seed for the circularity of our environment. Exactly. It's it for consumption and there's no end in consumption yeah I remember she was saying how because like the native crops don't take in these nitrogen fertilizers as well they've actually started to design a whole new plant around this system and it's called bt cotton and it's like a gene that's been added from a bacteria to produce a toxin that's supposed to like control the pests so now Monsanto is creating all these seeds and it's like one of the biggest seed GMO producers and chemical corporations in history. So now we're left with farmers having to purchase, like you were saying earlier, these seeds that are like genetically modified so they can increase their yield because of the demand in the supply chain. And then not all of these seeds are yielding to what they need to. So then they're having to buy more pesticides, which is surprise, surprise, produced by the same people. Obviously spreading all these pesticides has other ramifications that's like affecting these small villages where these farmers are planting these crops. Because all of these chemicals go into the water supply and then all of the people in in the villages are using that same water for everything that they're doing. And it's causing these really horrible birth defects, degenerative illnesses. And this is like so heartbreaking. The guy who was translating for like, he was around this like woman and her family and her son had these like really severe developmental delays. And he was saying like, they don't have money or resources to treat any of these issues. So they are just waiting for their children to die. It's so insane. And that is heartbreaking. A lot of these things that these children have, we have found ways here to like have children with developmental illnesses still lead full lives and people still care about people with disabilities there's whole families that care about these children and these community members and it's just incredibly sad like going out with my brother who has a disability like we both have cerebral palsy and my brother has a wheelchair is in a wheelchair and yeah like one time we went to the beach and I was like walking with him and he had his arm over my shoulder 
and it looked like we were struggling but we were having fun and then this old lady came up to me after and she's like I think it's really nice to see that you are like bringing your brother out like we don't get to see that a lot it's like at the time I was like yeah lady like (laughs) this is the 21st century (laughs) like it's my brother like of course I'm gonna take him places we're gonna do stuff it's like fun and exciting and like also you're making a lot of assumptions (laughs) based on like this one walk from the car to the we were at the beach yeah so I mean it's just sad because we have developed so many technologies and so many things that can create a better quality of life that these folks don't have access to it's like why did we develop them if people are not going to get full access to them yeah and I also remember this part about the suicide deaths with like farmers too that was really also eye-opening for me where it's like these cotton farmers who are like buying these seeds which are very expensive to try and get a higher yield and then like still not being able to produce the amount that they're required to to like fulfill their contracts and obviously to continue the supply chain going so they get super depressed and and they they can't afford to pay back they can't afford to pay back yeah that's the thing you know so it's like Because what happens is that these companies where they buy these seeds from cough, cough, Monsanto, cough, they will take their land as repayment. I think it's like they were saying how one farmer in 30 minutes is found suicide. It's the largest recorded wave of suicides in history. Like every 30 minutes, somebody, they go into a field and they will drink the pesticides. Yeah. And I mean, all of this too. So, right. So you have the one equation of like people making our stuff, but then they won't make it unless we are like, as consumers say, we want more stuff. Mm -hmm. So back to what you were talking about earlier about our, like our consumption problems. And right now it's like, basically our value is based on materialistic stuff and money and image and status, you know, and it's like possession of things is what we as a society is what's important for us. And it's like, what makes you more happy is having more stuff. And it's like propaganda that's being advertised. But in fact, you're actually less happy and more depressed and anxious. For sure. And it's kind of this regular everyday the box conundrum where you're basically pushing a button yeah and someone you don't know is going to die we're just all always doing that because of like the lack of transparency in all these industries because of our own ignorance to like some easily googleable facts not true (laughs) who and the lady that you were talking about the environmental activist vandana shiva she said that gross domestic product only measures commodity. That means it's not measuring against the labor that goes into these things, the waste that it creates, how to get rid of that waste, shipping things to places. All of that money is not really taken into account. Only thinking about the profit, right? It's mm-hmm. so awful. Here they were showing also in this documentary some like, YouTubers doing a haul. I don't know if that's oh, oh, the halls. Oh, the halls were disgusting. I mean, I guess I've been saved in that way where there's only very few plus size. I would always go to Forever 21 plus and Old Navy. Those are the two, right? But these mm-hmm. girls, they have access to everything. And in their videos, like you plan out a video, you go get the things, you 
you try on all the things, blah, blah, blah. And then in your video, you're literally showing it and you're like, this is super cute and I love it, but I'll probably not wear it. And I think during the, the YouTubers haul, like there was this comment that was said how like the prices in fashion has like decreased and which is also correlated to seeing the middle class disappearing. Yes. So, right. So that's kind of crazy. I just feel like today my word is crazy because all of this is just literally so crazy. What do we really need? You know, like studies, home, life insurance, whatever, but we can't attain that because it's too expensive. But guess what? There's a consolation prize. You can buy two t-shirts for the price of a coffee and go to your party and pretend that you're living this lavish life. Like exactly, exactly. Oh yeah. And I just think of my own habits of, well, first of all, having to buy like different sizes of the same thing because you're buying online. So not totally sure, but then like, it just adds up because it's so cheap. You're like, okay, I'm going to buy six of these. And like acquiring this clothes is not made me feel better. And it's made me poorer. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. We're sold this fake idea that like, we're getting richer by buying these clothes, but really we're getting poorer. And the only people getting richer are the people that are CEOs of these fast fashion companies. Mm. But to put it in a more positive note, there are some fashion brands that are like actually examining this careless production that's happening and endless consumption. You know, like that person that we mentioned who is a founder and CEO of People Tree. For a bigger brand, I think Patagonia is doing a pretty decent job. Mm-hmm. Um, they were in the documentary and I think they said like, we want consumers that are aware of what they're buying. We want consumers who know like what goes in to purchasing. And I really it's, love that. Yeah, it's an interesting like elitist standard to hold because it's like, we want people who are thinking critically about these things. And it's like, okay, that's good, yes. But I worry about folks who practice the theory the best often don't have time to read the theory, right? Yeah. So. But yeah, I, I thought that that's so groundbreaking to have a brand of clothing that's like, we only want socially conscientious shoppers. And if you're not thinking about that, turn away. It's like guilt tripping, guilt tripping for the soul. <laughs> yeah. And I completely agree with you. It's like, it appeals to the people that can afford, first of all, their clothing, because it's very expensive. Mm-hmm. But I was listening to this talk that Ursula did not too long ago and she was saying how exactly point in case where it's like not everyone can be afforded to think about living a more quote-unquote sustainable fashion life and part of that conversation is to like mend and repair our clothes you know and yes the these cheaply made clothes are gonna probably fall apart but it's a responsibility of fast fashion companies to have someone on site to help repair these clothing because someone who is buying these like value price clothing is probably, you know, taking care of other people, has a bunch of other jobs, doesn't have time to come home after a long day of work and like doing your other chores to sit and repair a piece of clothing. So in fact, it is their responsibility. You know, like if you're going to make these inexpensive clothes because people can actually afford it, then it's your responsibility to keep the lifeline of these clothes going. It ends up that you can't actually really afford it because you're having to buy new clothes every few months instead of buying a garment that'll last you 
several years, which even that rhetoric I have an issue with because people's weight, circumstances, feelings about different fabrics fluctuate so much with like the demands of who we are as people and the anxiety that we feel. It's a big ask to have people really slow down and look at what they're purchasing. And I feel very privileged to be able to have this podcast to like go through everything and be more intentional about my own fashion choices. Yeah. Privilege to be able to slow down because that's really what we need. The creation of garments was not made for this like quick lifestyle going from one shoot to another kind of thing. It's created for like everyday life. It's a slow process because you're supposed to get more out of the clothes than you did out of the process. It's supposed to have longevity but as quickly as your clothes or fashion is created it can be torn down so really take time to consider adopting new pieces of clothing a hundred percent that's kind of what I got towards the end of this it's like we all have our own ways and our own versions to collectively find a solution for this fashion industry because it is our collective earth and I think we forget that as customers to this system, we have such a huge stake in it. There won't be any jobs if we don't support this kind of system. So it's like, it is possible. And a lot of these things that the fashion industry puts into question, it feels so overwhelming because it's a lot of systemic issues. Because clothing is so personal, we can start from there. I guess like, what is a true cost? These clothes that we have, and it's been clear, it's like cheap labor, specifically cheap female labor they did say though people working in cotton farms here like men in their 50s from like 45 to 65 will have like a specific kind of heart attack brought on by these pesticides and that's how Ray pepper got into organic farming yeah organic is the way to go <laughs> yeah 100 percent I think they, they focus really, the conversation is around Bangladesh because a lot of, there's a lot of factories there and is the most ex- least expensive. So this is the thing. It's like the CEO of these big companies literally get to geographically pick where these events occur, which is so messed up. And then Cambodia. Yeah. They had protests for living wage and they were met with riot police. And they would have to have funerals like the day of, like, because people will say like, why don't they mobilize? It's like, because violence. And it highlights too the white supremacy in fashion because all these people that are successful, even my good sis Lucy, it's white supremacy. Like the fact that you could even get out of that and be at like the top of the food chain. There's not a whole lot of people get to the top there. And then when they do, That doesn't necessarily guarantee they're going to make a whole lot of change. You know, we were talking about one of the garment workers, Shima Actor, earlier, who like works and lives in Dhaka and has a daughter. And throughout the documentary, they kind of go in and out into her story. And just some stats that I wrote down here just from her story is that there's 40 million garment factories in the world. Almost 4 million are in Bangladesh, working in 5,000 factories, making clothing for major Western brands. 85% are women. They get paid less than $3 a day. And the lowest paid garment workers in the world are in this particular part of the world, which is why a lot of the stories come from here. And when I first watched this documentary, I cried during this part. (laughs) When I rewatched it, I cried again. I could cry right now. (laughs) 
Because her story really moved me because it was similar to my mom having to make sacrifices and having to think for the future of your child. The way that she is telling her her narrative was just so heartbreaking because I can really feel this pain of like not having a choice um, and it's not good conditions. You know, she also tried to form a union and she proposed the demands to the managers and like they had an altercation the managers locked them and they beat them up with scissors they attacked them she was saying that they kicked and punched them and banged their heads on the walls and so she because she's working all day in these terrible conditions she has to make the choice to leave her child in a village that's outside of the city and there's just this really heartbreaking moment where she's like in this boat going to the village and like her and her daughter are just there together and having to leave her there because she wants to offer her child a future where she doesn't have to rely on being a garment worker. And even to think like her herself, she hadn't seen her own parents in a year. And also she was, she was incredibly young. 23. Overall, I definitely recommend this documentary for Anyone, really, anyone who's ever thought about where our clothes come from, who makes them, people who have been thinking about it for so long. I think it's something really interesting to, to look back and see and just highlighting that it is true. We do still live uh, in an economy that's very capitalistic, but we should be able to, like what you were saying before, is hold people accountable for how it's used. And on that, we also need to celebrate the creativity of human beings, you know, and like the people who make these clothing and how this is creative work instead of just looking at it as like this cheap labor. The fashion industry up at up at the top is extremely nepotistic and we're not choosing the best people who would have the best ideas for the future of fashion. Yeah. So the people behind it and also not to look at land as a commodity. So combining all those things, I think we can take back this power and ask questions and demand for like a better system. Yeah. So I guess just to kind of wrap things up, like what are some goals or? So my friend just accidentally left her sewing machine at my house last night. So I'm going to see if I can get more familiar with this machine, maybe do some alterations on a lot of the clothes that I've been meaning to get altered but yeah so my goals are to sort through some of this clothes see what I can salvage or not this is an update that I forgot to include which is very important I found somebody on uh, creative reuse zero waste which is a Facebook group who made a coat out of her scraps it looks amazing anyway she's done it so I feel empowered I would love to make myself like a really sick pea coat so I can be a box with legs (laughs) the goal. I guess as far as my goals this week, so I'm, I'm visiting my family, which I mostly only get to visit once a year. It is, you know, the holiday seasons are coming up. So my goal is to have good conversations with my mom around consumption. I've made really big headways with her. As we all know, she didn't purchase anything for Black Friday. Let's bring you better work. Let's go. My goal, I guess, this week when I see them is to have those really honest, productive conversations. Everything we wear was touched by human hands. So just remember that. Black lives matter all around the world. Be nice to your houseless neighbors and don't buy that thing. 
Don't buy that thing. Theme song provided by Jonathan Robinson.